This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Abracadabra Entertainment and Supplies. Top hats, masks, black balloons, whatever you need to grab the children's attention. Just say Abracadabra. This show is also made possible by the generous support of listeners like you over at patreon.com slash pod cemetery. My name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Serial Killer Week on Pod Cemetery with our next Patron's Choice episode, 1997's Kiss the Girls and 2021's The Black Phone. If you want to know why a movie like Kiss the Girls is on a horror movie podcast, well, you just have to back us on patreon.com slash podcemetery. We'll be having a conversation in the near future about what we consider to be horror for the purposes of the show. Uh, and that extends to, like, kids' horror. What counts as kids' horror? Uh, both sides. So keep an eye out for that on patreon.com slash podcemetery. Although, I mean, do you really need to explain why being... Abducted is scary to anyone? No, but I think this is important. Just being a thriller where there's the possibility of your death is not enough to make a horror movie. For instance, The Firm, not a horror movie. Which one's The Firm? Tom Cruise. Secret, shadowy society. Wants him dead. I probably saw it back when it came out. It's the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we will talk about that. Moving right along into our classic film, 1997's Kiss the Girls, written by David Class, based on the novel by James Patterson, directed by Gary Flater, starring Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd, Carrie Elwes, Tony Goldwyn, J.O. Sanders, Brian Cox, and Jeremy Piven. This is the first movie made about Alex Cross, who would continue to have movies made about him, uh, including one with Morgan Freeman again. Along came a a spider. spider. I remember that one, too. I remember both these movies coming out. And, of course, Tyler Perry's Alex Cross, (laughs) which is a weird choice, and I kind of want to see it. (laughs) Maybe it's good. I don't know. Uh, Kelsey, Hmm. what is Kiss the Girls about? A detective is looking for his niece who has been taken by a serial killer slash abductor of women. And one girl escapes and aids him in locating his niece. It is available with a subscription to Prime Video, Paramount Plus, or Epics. You can rent it for $4 or buy it for $14 to $15. Kelsey, should people watch Kiss the Girls? It's very dated. It's very 90s. It's very 90s, yes. I thought it was still good. 
I'm, I love these kind of thrillers. Love them. I think that this could do with an update. I feel yeah. that we could do a remake of this. And not to say better. that this movie is <laughs> bad. It's just so 90s that it, it, it kind of hurts the movie a little bit. Because right. you're, you're so just like, oh boy. Like this is not. The product of its time. <laughs> even though that was 90s as well, this is not seven. No. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's it's probably not fair. I mean, personally, I think David Fincher is an incredible director. Right. You're only comparing the two because it has Morgan, Morgan Freeman, Freeman as a detective. And it is a crime thriller. And it gets and, a serial. Yeah. Uh huh. So, like, it's the same sort of thing. Movies like this cropped up everywhere around this time. So... Yeah, there's bound to be some that aren't as good as others. This isn't a bad one of those things, I would say, but it's certainly not like, you know, your your high value <laughs> serial killer thrillers. Well, it's interesting because both film this week, interestingly, because this is not a choice that most films make are going to not really tell you much about who these killers are, what their motivations are. Uh-huh. I mean, their you, can, past. you can figure it out on a very basic level, but nothing beyond like the basic I like women, I want to rape women and collect them and when they make me mad I kill them. Like, you know, like aside from the most basic understanding, like there isn't a lot of depth to it. And I think that the second film is going to do that because it wants to focus on the uh, the victims. Right. Which I think if you're going to pick between the two, you probably should pick the victims. Now, I'm a weird person and I enjoy learning about right. creepy psychos. Like, I think that's a cool movie. I think that's a fun time. But I know that makes me weird. Right. But also, like, if you just leave them mysterious, there's something compelling about that. But you could mess that up. You can do that poorly where it's just like, no, now I want to know more about the killer and you're just not telling me anything and not in a compelling way. <laughs> um, but but yes, in between. So you're saying if you had your choice, we probably should focus on the victims. Yes. But and I think that the second film is pretty successful in that regard. Whereas this this movie, Kiss the Girls, it's more about the detective. Now, if you're yeah. going to make it a detective story, I need there to be clues i need there to be puzzles like in seven which we don't get here so instead it's it's like a combination of the victims because ashley judd kind of helps him and like does she though well i mean she she basically leads them right to him if she hadn't escaped they never would have found him yeah right so there's that but like this movie, unfortunately, is a little surface level, and I don't think it did enough detective work to draw me in if that's who your main focus is going to be. And Ashley Judd, well, she was barely there. She hardly knows anything, like, right. about what was going on. And, like, mm-hmm. so I don't get a lot of, like, you know, not that I want my characters to have trauma, but, like, the second film, it's like there's a reason that you care about these victims. And not that you don't care about her, but, like, she escaped everything, and then she's just right. going to lead him to him. And it's like, where's the intrigue here? Right. I think I just summed up my opinion of the film. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, I mean, that should really tell you all that you need. If you're the type of person that just sort of soaks up these movies, and you know the ones I'm talking about, 
Yeah. Watch it. Especially if you have Prime or <laughs> Paramount Plus or Epics and you can watch it for free. Yeah. Sure. It's fine. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. There's but nothing really bad about it. I don't know that I would necessarily pay money for it. No. No. No, it's way too 90s to pay for. <laughs> it's too old. It should be in the public domain. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1997's Kiss the Girls. What sort of policeman are you? I'm a forensic psychologist. It's a fancy way of saying I'm a guy who determines the hows and whys. For forensic psychologist Alex Cross, solving crimes was always logical and always professional. Until somebody made it personal. We got a call from Durham today. Naomi's missing. One of the women abducted was my niece. I got to go. The board shows eight women missing. How close are connected are they? They all share the same profile. All young, late teens, early 20s. Pretty. Yeah. They're all extraordinary in some way. Only two bodies have been found. Killer left a note first of the second murder scene. Signed to Casanova. Casanova, a great lover. Kiss me. Now, the only one who can help him is the woman who got away. I'd like to say something to Casanova. I broke your rules. None of the other women helped. So if you're looking for someone to blame, Blame me. What do you see when you escape? There were doors. There were walls. There were stairs. Guy's a pro. A real student of the game. And he likes to play. We get one shot here. When it goes down, I need this guy intact. Every night when I go to sleep, I hear those women's voices. You want to save your niece? Take me with you. This is the most ambitious stunt of serial pathology. This guy's Houdini squared. Come on! Hold it! I think our guy's a little different. I bet these women are alive. Killing's not his ulterior motive. This guy's a collector. Kiss me. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Kiss the Girls begin? Now, see, here's the problem. They mm. begin right away with the killer's perspective. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, here we go. Going to hear this story. But no, you're going to hear that in June of 1975 in Boca Raton, he fell in love with these two little girls and stayed in their attic all summer. Like watched them. And I'm like, okay, well, how old were you? I think he was also a kid. Okay, so he would why, have to be. why were his parents not wondering where right. the hell he was? Right. What is that story? And they will never tell you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just feeding into the motivation of the killer. Uh, I mean, it's called Kiss the Girls for a reason. I mean, you know that Georgie Porgy, Georgie Porgy putting, pi- putting in pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. No. Oh. Forgot about that. Yeah, uh huh. Or kiss digger. <laughs> Probably not that. One. I thought it was uh, a like kiss the girls goodnight sort of thing. Right, but I mean it's it's supposed to evoke like 
that it's not a good thing, but it's right. about love for him. It's mm-hmm. about affection for him. He calls himself. This is now. That's the problem. I kept getting confused. Which one is Casanova? Which one is the gentleman caller? Yeah. So there, Casanova is our primary killer. We'll get to the gentleman caller in a, in a, in a little bit. A little so later. So this is Casanova. This is Casanova. He's the primary killer. He's the one that kidnaps Ashley Judd. He falls in love with women. And then when they let him down, he kills them. And then he finds a replacement for them. You missed the part where he abducts them. Right. He falls in love with them. He abducts them. And (laughs) they disappoint them. He kills them. Uh, And then he has to replace them again. Right. This is a... It's fresh. Except that he's not going to eat these girls. Right. He wants to keep them for himself. To love them. This is... I mean, this is a story you have seen many times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is the first time anyone saw this happen, but it's... Right. I mean, you could say that that's this kind of the same as Brides of Dracula and But it's, like it's enough to where, like, I'm so tired of this trope, but it's, like, early enough where when he starts talking about, you know, what he's thinking about how he's a collector... This guy's a collector. ...and how he loves you or whatever, and Ashley Judd later will be like... I wouldn't call it love. And then Brian Cox is like, what are you talking about? He thinks this way. And they like get mad at him. It's one of, it's that trope where the profiler is like, this is what he's thinking. And then they get mad at you for saying that. And it's like, but no, you understand he's a psychopath. Of course he doesn't think right. And I'm not the one that's saying that's the case. (laughs) He is. I didn't say this is what love is. I'm telling you, he thinks it's love. But anyway, we're getting way, way, way ahead of ourselves. But that's like the motivation for this guy. And so we're getting introduced to that in the beginning. But after that, we learn nothing else about why he's doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Pretty much. Yeah. It's frustrating, I would say. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, again, like, if you're going to focus on somebody, okay, let's focus on the victims. You focus on specifically Ashley Judd, who's not... Who is a victim, but not really a victim. Right. And it's just like, then we have her be the savior. But she's not the savior because it's Morgan Freeman. So am I focused on Morgan Freeman? Okay, is it a detective movie? Where's the detective work then? Right. What I wonder is, why didn't we see more of Naomi? We saw a little bit of Naomi. We saw a little bit of She's Naomi. a driving factor in the plot. And she's the violinist, so she's constantly playing, playing the, violin. the violin. Yeah, but like we never see anything from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Seems like a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. If, for those of you guys that haven't watched it, that's Morgan Freeman's niece. The reason he yes. gets involved in this case, because this is out of his jurisdiction. Yes. This is taking place in both North Carolina mm-hmm. and California. And D.C. And D.C. Which is where he's from. Who's in D.C.? He is. He starts out in D.C. Oh, that's what you mean. That's where he's teaching boxing classes. (laughs) Yes. And we're going to get to know Morgan Freeman. We're going to understand that he's a great guy. And he Uh understands people, especially Uh women. And uh, (laughs) he saves this woman who killed her husband because she was in an abusive relationship. And Uh she's going to kill herself. And he gets her to stop. And he gets her to realize it's self-defense and... Isn't he the most amazing cop right. ever? Nobody will be able to hear your story and the reason that this happened if you kill yourself. Yeah. So when he finds out that Naomi has been taken, he immediately goes to North Carolina to see what he can do about it. But 
before we get to that scene where he goes to meet the cops, we see one girl being killed by the captor. Yeah. And I gotta say, one of the things that does make this very 90s, and I'm not saying that I need this. I don't need torture porn. I don't need murder. I don't need rape. Like, I don't need those things, right? But I'll say that this does, it feels very 90s in that it implies a lot of things and does not show much of anything. Yeah, uh-huh. And I don't know if that's worse, like, in a way. Because it's just like, it's almost like you're too afraid to do it. Because you're not doing it in a scary way. You're not mm-hmm. doing it in a horrific way. You're just like, ha-ha, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Isn't that creepy? But we're not going to show it to you. <laughs> I don't know, it's weird. But anyway, he kills her because she disappointed him. So meanwhile, Morgan Freeman goes to the cops in North Carolina, and they make him wait. He's very upset about this. Two hours. So to show his frustration, they're going to show him very angrily opening up these double doors, yeah. right? And he does it twice in a row. And I was like, Jesus, really? Like Do we need that? making his way through... The department, yeah, and, and then, then it will later, happen later. It will happen yeah. a third time, but you're just like, come on, editor, we get it, man, get it together, we get it. <laughs> but so, I, I will say, I will say that Morgan Freeman can devastate you with a look, and he does that a lot in this movie. A lot of times, where he's just looking at people like, uh, I'm so done with you," and it's just this. Like, there's one example of him. He's going to be talking to the professor in the pool later, and he's just going to give him this look, not even respond to something he said, just stare at him. Like, just devastating. <laughs> yes, Morgan Freeman has a way of making look somebody look like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so we have Sykes, played by Alex MacArthur, and Nick Ruskin, played by Carrie Elwes. Carrie Elwes! Yeah, doing just a terrible southern accent. Dr. Cross. You've been waiting for us for a while. Just, like, it does not, it fits him like a cheap suit. Only two bodies have been found. So probably be the third. Oh, and the killer left a note first in the second murder scene? Signed to Casanova. It's so bad. Oh, Yeah, I'm sorry. He does a better American accent. You use the subject's first name and your tone. You gotta keep it soft. Steady. His American accent's actually pretty good. His, uh, I, okay, sorry. Yes, a Southern accent is an American accent. I don't mean to offend our our friends from the South. What I mean is like a non-regional American accent. He's very good at it. Regional specific Southern accent, terrible. I'll say one thing for our boy. He's got very nice image. I know it's a, it's a statue, right? A tall, pointy thing with it. There it is, just like you said. And, uh, how many of the other girls share that profile? Of course, he's British. Unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. So they finally show up and he's like, you've kept me waiting for two hours. And they're like, well, come on and look at the new body that we just found. Right. This is our southern way. We just take things slow. <laughs> uh, and so they introduce him to Brian Cox at the scene, who's the captain. Chief, sorry. And he's going to tell him, hey, I don't mind if you join in, but you don't get in the way. You don't do anything, you know, whatever. Consider yourself at home, but don't mess around in the kitchen. Yes. I want you to consider yourself my guest. Make yourself at home. But don't mess around in the kitchen. 
Understand me? And Morgan Freeman gives him a look, <laughs> which he will do a lot in this movie. Who's the guy who says that he's a real student of the game? Morgan Freeman is, like, friends with this guy? He, like, knows him pr- from previously? Oh, yeah, that's J.O. Sa- Sanders. How did they know each other? Did they say He's that? in the FBI. Okay. And they were old colleagues, I think. Okay, why is he here? I guess because it's a serial killer? Yeah, because the FBI is involved. There's kidnapping cases, yeah. So he is the Felix Leiter of the Alex Cross series, I think is probably the best way to put it. I don't know what that means. For those of you that don't know, <laughs> in the James Bond series, yes. he is friends or recurring colleagues with an American CIA agent named Felix Leiter. And they just sort of occasionally meet up and, and help each other out. They go on adventures together. Yes. Uh-huh. Fun. Yeah. So he will appear they again. playing with the boys. He's in Along Came a Spider. Same actor, playing the same role. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. What a fun day. <laughs> well, that was a fun day. <laughs> that was a fun day. So he explains that this murderer is a real student of the game. He leaves zero clues, but he loves to rape. He leaves the worst uh, lesions or, or yeah, whatever it uh-huh. is that I've ever seen. But no bodily fluids? Yeah, nothing. No uh-huh. fingerprints. No DNA of any kind. He's a real student of the game and he likes to play. Yeah. Guy's a pro. A real student of the game. A real student of the game. And he likes to play. You may recognize him from Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> I couldn't think. I mean, yes, I do remember him from Angels in the Outfield, but I couldn't remember what I knew him from. Revolutionary Road. Oh, yeah, I do remember him from Revolutionary Road. He's the neighbor, right? Bart Pollock is the character's name. Yeah, I mean, he's been in a lot of things over a very long career. He was in True Detective for two episodes. (laughs) After we see Morgan Freeman looking at the body, we switch gears and we meet Ashley Judd's character. Kate McTiernan, who does not capitalize the T. Like McKenna Grace does not capitalize the K. Just MCT right in a row, like it's not anything. (laughs) We are English majors. Consonants don't work that way. She does kickboxing, which is very important. She is in an actual kickboxing class, and they do show that she spars with men, uh, yeah, even co-ed. though men mistreat her because well, they this can. this guy's just a total dick because they're trying to prove a point that she she isn't the best at kickboxing, but she she's a spitfire. Like, she has that energy and that passion. Or as she wants say, to defend herself. As they say in the second movie... You know how to take a hit and you get up every time. You remember that from, a, from oh, oh, sorry, from the black phone. I thought you meant Along Came a Spider. No, <laughs> but that would be cool if I did. <laughs> but they should be wearing headgear and they're not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Where is the headgear? The point of the scene, though, is that this guy kind of plays dirty because he wants to be like, oh, you think you can hang with the men? Well, let me fight unfairly in order to win. And she kind of gets her ass handed to her in this instance. But that doesn't mean she's going to stop like that sort of thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is when we're going to get the scene about he's a collector, as Chris (laughs) keeps 
saying. Um, and, and He's a he, collector. He believes that the women are still alive and that the women that they have found that are dead, they've only found a few girls, but they know that uh -huh. a bunch have gone missing. Although I don't understand how they've put those women to this guy. Because I think they previously knew they were kidnapped. Right. And it fit the M.O. or whatever. So they thought that they were all kidnapped by the same person and then they show up dead. Maybe. Wouldn't know because they don't bother to give us an M.O. They don't really tell us right. how he takes these women in any well, way. Well, we see one time what he does. but Kind of. Yeah, kind of. But what Morgan Freeman, Alex Cross, is going to say is that we found this girl out, out in the open. He wanted her to be found. If he had killed the other women, then would we would have found them, found by, them now. by now. I think killing's not his ulterior motive. This guy's a collector. I bet these women are alive. Come on, Doc. Our boy's brain is soft as a two-minute egg and nothing personal. But I figure every one of them gals is tied to a tree just waiting to get found. Well, think about it, Sykes. The three you found were killed out of sequence. They weren't even among the first abducted. That's right. Yeah, but that don't mean that they're not still out there. Oh, but hell, he would have found them by now. He makes absolutely no attempt to hide them. And the way they were killed, it's very revealing. That last long walk through the woods. Marching to their fate. Exactly. A rape. Cutting off of the hair. It's a punishment. Maybe for violating some trust. When he is investigating, he will realize that his niece's uh, violin has gone missing. Yeah, and that's part of the thing. It is. And, and it is part of what's happening with the girls, but like, you're gonna only see like moments of it. And like, yeah. again, I don't need torture. I don't need to know all the horrific things that he wants to do but to why does women. he want the other girls? Why, where, what are they doing? Well, well, they all are extraordinary in some way, yeah. but yeah, they're not really, he, they're not showing you what they give you a little bit, like a mm -hmm. taste. And it's like, why are you like tantalizing me yeah. with this character that you don't want me to be focusing on? It's weird. And he wants like his last piece as a really, really smart woman, capable, independent, strong willed to like finish out his collection. And because they keep like trying to get away or because they buckle and they aren't as strong willed as he thought they were, he'll like kill them. I think it's usually if they don't fall that they're in love trying, with him. I think know. that they're trying to get away, that they right. break his rules. And they, but they don't love him, and that's a that's a that's a no no. Because he's going to kill her just for talking. When he abducts her, he kills all her fish. It's very sad. Oh yeah. So he'll put the fish tank at the bottom of her stairs. So even though she's like ready, she knows someone's there. There's this fun little distraction where she thinks. Like a, a hanger on a closet door is shaking, so she thinks the guy's in the in the closet, uh, but he's actually behind her. And he grabs her, she elbows him and runs away and runs down the stairs and runs into her fish tank, which he put there. Which made me wonder, okay, how is he planning to get out? How is he planning? Out? Like, he had to have been planning to knock her out. Yeah, he was and I guess taking his time, out. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's another thing that connects these two movies. If you needed any more, they both wear masks. Uh -huh. They do. I don't know anything about Casanova. Did Casanova wear a mask? Yeah, I mean, not really. Giacomo Casanova. He was like a socialite <laughs> and author. And so he got famous because he wrote an autobiography with a bunch of fake names and stuff like that. He had a bunch of affairs. So, so that's why his name is what it is now. 
Um, but apparently it was instrumental in deciphering social norms in France at the time. Hmm, interesting. Or at least Europe. Because he was Italian, hence the name Giacomo or Giacomo or however you pronounce it. But so he gives her these rules. The rules are something like she can never call out, never try to escape. Don't try to escape. Don't cry out for help. And do not try any of your kickboxing tricks. Do you understand? Never try to hurt me. Something like that, Like yeah. the mm-hmm. most basic, like obvious things that you're going to try to do, unless you are that terrified of being killed. But I always have the opinion that they're going to kill you anyway. Kelsey, what did I say about Casanova early on in this movie when we started hearing him talk? Oh, that he sounded like the bad guy from Ghost. Yes. Because it is the bad guy from Ghost. Tony Goldwyn. Except that that guy's not playing Casanova. Exactly. So I, this is the movie's lying to you. You hear him and it's very obviously Tony Goldwyn's voice. And... It's not Tony Goldwyn. As a matter of fact, there is a moment later when the character that Tony Goldwyn is playing talks directly to Casanova. And so that's Tony Goldwyn talking to Tony Goldwyn. (laughs) You know this is off limits. Nobody tracked me. Of course. Just like your cabin in the woods, right? I'm not the one who made all the phone calls. I wasn't posting fucking photographs on the web. That's not how they found you, Will. Or they would have found me. You don't belong here. If you're here, I'm here. There's this whole side story about this doctor. I don't... I. It was just confusing. I, I know it's a red herring. I get that. But I, I was just like, the who professor? is he? And why is he connected to all these women that they decide to take, even though he's obviously not the killer? Yeah. And he's not. So it's a whole big complex thing. He goes and he talks to this doctor, a professor who is like one of Naomi's teachers. Or He's whatever. like a real Casanova. Right. And he really rubs Cross the wrong way. Later on, they're going to pinpoint this other serial killer in California called the Gentleman Caller and think, oh man, is he actually a bi-coastal serial killer? Uh, when they get there, it turns out that he's not, and he up and disappears. And this is this plastic surgeon. The reason they do it is because Ashley Judd is in the hospital after escaping. Do, how does she get out? Oh, well, that's a whole thing we haven't really talked about. Uh, if you want to get into that, we can. Yeah, let's talk about her escape. Then we'll get into Gentleman Caller. So the first rule she breaks is never call out. She calls out, she talks, she finds out that there are other women there. They all have their names. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... He's obviously going to have cameras, right? So he knows that she has done this. So he gives her a drug. Like, he drugs her food. Which is interesting, because in the other movie, he's like, why would I drug your food? Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, But so he drugs her food. And I think he's coming in with the antidote when she hurts him? Yeah, I don't know. Or was he going to kill her for breaking the rule? I think he was going to kill her. Or at least punish her. I don't know. But before he can give her whatever it is he's going to give her, she knocks him out. Or, like, she pulls him down with her kickboxing abilities. And she just runs. And remember, she's super drugged up. But she still is able to Uh 
run, 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 run uh, out into the woods and to a cliff uh, where she's a going waterfall. to where she's going to be posed with the question or the decision: jump or be taken. And she decides to jump. Now you know what question you didn't mention. Because the movie sets it up well where it doesn't even, like, it puts you kind of in her state of mind. They don't do that thing where she just stops and hesitates and then decides she needs to save herself. Later on, in retrospect, she'll be thinking, I didn't even try to save any of those women. She'll kind of beat herself up over that. I think that's actually really compelling because the movie sort of puts you in her shoes in that way where they didn't even mention it. They didn't even make you think of it until after the fact when she's ruminating on it and she's like, I could have saved them and I did nothing. She couldn't have saved them. Exactly. But that but that's my point is like I think the movie did a pretty good job of of making you experience it in the same way that she experiences it. I have to run and I need to run now. And when she gets to the the cliff, I have to jump. And she, the stunt double, almost Hits the cliff. So she's on. She gets real close. She's on a cliff above a waterfall, which is lower down. And as this stunt person jumps off the cliff, passes right alongside, right in front of the waterfall, like almost hit their head on the cliffside. Like, oh my God. And then she gets knocked out in the water. And what we find out is that kids found her. Yes. Unconscious. On the side of the river. And took her to the cops. Yeah. But she's going to start doing poorly. Uh, and they can't figure out why until Alex Cross, a doctor. We haven't mentioned that. He is a doctor. He's Dr. Detective Alex Cross. Yes. Um, he figures out that there's a particular drug that falls under this family that wouldn't have come up. Systol. Systol. Wouldn't have come up in your checks because it's this type of drug, but it has this effect. And if you want to counteract it, you need to use this other antidote, which they do, and it works. What he's able to figure out from there is who bought all the Systol. And it's plastic this surgeon plastic from surgeon. California. Exactly. And so this is how they're like, oh my God, there's another serial killer in no, California. At first, they think it's just the same person. Right. But when they talk to California, the FBI guy, his FBI friend, uh, J.O. O. Sanders, tells him that there's another. And they're like, oh man, is he the first bi coastal serial killer in 70 years or whatever? But no, he's not. So they immediately fly to California to investigate this guy. And the first time they cut to his house, he's in a rage. And they're, like, just watching him Mm -hmm. from the woods. Oh, and he looks out at them. It's almost like he sees them, but he doesn't. Yeah. I hate when movies do this shit. And they also make a Mr. Lover Lover. Yeah, they call him Mr. Lover Lover. Because they go to a bar where he goes, and he's already talking to two women. Damn, he's in there. Just like that. Mr. Lover Lover. Mm, Mr. Lover Lover. Girl. But yeah, the reason they think that it's gonna it's it's two different people is because when they go into the house, into his house, mm-hmm. uh Ashley Judd is like, this doesn't feel like him. This doesn't seem like right. him. And, and Cross confirms that. He's like what we have here is a Leopold and Loeb. Yes. It's two men working in conjunction, thinking that they're smarter than the police. It's after this that we get our third burst through the doors, by the way. Yes, he gets pissed off because the cops go right in and arrest this guy. And they end up finding his, like, 
lab, I guess, in his house. And they see on one side, there's all the news clippings for the gentleman caller. And on the other side, it's all the news clippings for Casanova. So it's like a competition between these guys, right? And then they see a photograph of the professor. So they think it's him. So they think it's him. And so they arrest him. Why is that there? Uh, They did it on purpose. To make it look like him. Yes. Got it. They're fucking with him. I take it we didn't get our confession. We didn't. It's not Casanova. His picture was on the wall. Ah, that's part of that thing. But his picture... Kate's a setup. Brothers in arms watching each other's backs. Wicksax is a perfect passive for them. It's too smug and too vain to even know what hit him. It's just a bush league lich. Anyway, this guy's a dickhead, and he's so self-absorbed, and he thinks he's smarter than the police, and all that stuff, because he is very violent to women. He has all these, you know, violent photographs and stuff like that, but... We never get this confirmation, but he says you can confirm it with the women. It was all consensual. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is a commentary on consent. I think it's just they've run into a, a wall. This isn't the guy they're looking for. He really did get consent. It's a masochism thing. Mm-hmm. And we're back to square one. They've already done a sensory memory test with Ashley Judd and it didn't work. So they decided to do a second one. And she realizes that she was hearing constant water, which makes them realize We've looked at all the places that were out there. What about slave quarters that are underground? Uh huh. They find where a plantation was. We haven't talked this entire time about Richard T. Jones, who plays Seth, Naomi's boyfriend, mm-hmm. who's like really smart as well, and so he knows that there's a plantation out there that fits within these these parameters. I know him from Judging Amy. He's been in a lot of stuff since then, but I know him from Judging Amy. So it's weird seeing him in this. This is around the same time. And he doesn't have any facial hair in this, which is also weird. Anyway. Well, once we discover where they are, we cut to them in this place. And the gentleman caller is there talking to Casanova. Oh, did we say it's Tony Goldwyn? It's the gentleman caller. The guy from Ghost. Yes, yeah. Yes. uh He's having Casanova's have... Or or no, not Casanova. It's actually gentleman caller is conducting one of the evenings that we've seen like glimpses of he has all the women set up sitting at chairs while naomi plays on her violin and casanova is of course pissed because hey this is just supposed to be for me not for you what are you doing and uh casanova shows up in the rafters there's a moment in this scene where the movie obviously wants you to think that maybe it they are the same person that he's just talking to himself. That he's talking to himself because they, like, don't show Casanova. That it's a two-personality situation. Yeah, you just hear his voice, and the voice is Tony Goldwyn. But, like, that resolves by the end of this scene. <laughs> so, like, they don't let you sit on that at all. No. Gentleman Caller is going to kiss the girls. <laughs> and, and that's going to make Casanova give him a warning shot. And they hear that. While they're searching, yes, because they just happen to be up above them, mm-hmm. looking for the slave quarters. And the gentleman caller is like, "You can't kill me. Without me, you'd be alone." Uh huh. Which like, again, what like, about all my women? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but like again, like here's all this backstory that you're alluding to that you're not going to give us. Yeah. You know what? If you want a story about psychopaths bonding, there's a lot of those. You know what? Watch Hannibal. Murder by numbers, baby. Yeah, that's a Leopold and Loeb situation right there, right? Absolutely. Because they think they're smart enough to get away with that's it. That's the whole point. Yeah, uh-huh. that's that's what Leopold and Loeb is. 
But once they realize the cops are there, they're like, oh, shit, get out of here. Go. Uh huh. There's this weird thing where Cross, he has to shoot his way in. That's how they know that they're there. And then, like, he gets locked in one place and then he jumps into the water and then he comes out well, another he falls place. falls through the floor into the water right. and, and comes up through the well. But so, like, basically nothing changed. So, like, why did that even happen? But we needed an action moment. Yeah. And he finds his niece. Yes, he saves, the girls are all saved, and he shoots the guy from Ghost. Yes. And he asks him, what's his name? Tell me his name. And he's like, he's too good. And you're just yeah. like, oh no. <laughs> okay. And then he dies. Oh, we didn't say Jeremy Piven died. Jeremy Piven. Jeremy we Piven haven't even mentioned that he's in this movie. Di- yeah, they're trying to like... <sighs> Cross's cousin, who's also a cop, they're, they're tailing Tony Goldwyn... And they don't want to be seen, and they don't want her to be seen because she's with them. So she's hanging out with Jeremy Piven, who's another cop. And then he gets hit by Tony Goldwyn in his car when they try to arrest him. Uh, when they when they try to run in, and and he just dies. <laughs> oh, he's a nice guy. Yeah, he's a, he plays a good character in this. He's just obsessed with baseball. <laughs> a very non-Jeremy Piven character. Hmm. We get a shot of Judd. Okay, so like I said, she's a doctor, right? We get a yeah. shot of her at the fucking hospital. She's walking around with a goddamn, like, pearls necklace yeah. while she's this doctor. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. for, all right. But then she goes home. And she's being surveilled. Yes. 24-7. Because they know that he's out there somewhere. hmm And Carrie Elwes shows up. He sends the cops home. Yeah, because he's a cop. And he's just like, what you doing? She's like, cooking dinner, you want to come in? He's like, sure. <laughs> and he knows where her colander is before yeah. she can tell him. She doesn't even fucking also, register Also, she that. doesn't peel her carrots. <laughs> she just chops them she unpeeled. She just chops them unpeeled. Who does that? <laughs> oh, so, so, yeah, let's point this out. One of the reasons that Ashley Judd claims to be useful in any capacity. I mean, really, it's she wants to avenge herself. She wants to save the women that she left behind. She has personal motivations. But why should they let her come along in this investigation? She says she knows him. She knows how he moves and his gait. Take me with you. I think you're best served by staying here right now. And pretend like nothing's happened. No, no, that's not what I was going to say. I just think you should be trying to get to... I'm the only person who's seen this guy. I know his size. I know his voice. I know the way he moves. Okay. She? Didn't she? No, she's the one who said it was the gentleman caller when she saw him or whatever, right? It was when she got to his house that she was like, this doesn't feel like right. him. Right. She totally believed it was Tony Goldwyn when she saw him. Yes. Uh, until she found out that it wasn't when she when she saw more about how he worked. She has been, we've seen her after she escapes and she has that press conference. Carrie Elwes is there. With her. Oh, yeah. They've met. Yes. She knows him. And she, so like her big claim to fame, her usefulness that she knows him, how he moves and all of that. She'll be able to identify him. Absolutely not. She misidentifies the wrong person and she fails to identify Carrie Elwes on multiple occasions. I'm just annoyed because the movie does every attempt to make this guy look pretty big. 
And I love oh, yeah. Carrie Elvis, but he's not a big dude. And they give him Tony Goldwyn's voice. Yeah. Which is which is not the case, because like I said, he has that really hacky southern accent. But then when it, when he like sort of reveals himself that yeah, that is me, that you know, because he, he knows too much. Yeah, he goes to the Tony Goldwyn voice, which isn't Tony Goldwyn, it's Carrie Elwes doing an impression. Yes. You use the subject's first name and your tone. You gotta keep it soft. Steady. But it's better than the southern accent. He's been waiting for us for a while. So, yeah, it makes you wonder, okay, does he just, his whole entire life, he does a fake southern accent? Yes. In his everyday life when he goes to work as a cop? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know. Anyway. You find out that he has been watching her for months, and he tells her all the things that she's been doing wrong all this time, why Casanova was able to walk into her life so easily, and she starts to realize, oh my god, I know who you are, and then we get this long fight sequence. She stabs him, she hits him, she kicks him, but not, don't worry, he's getting a lot of hits in as well. This is not her just kicking ass here. She gets her ass kicked as well. But she, she gets ends her arm up, sliced open. Yeah, but she ends up knocking him out by pulling the pots and pans down on top of him when uh-huh. she's on top when he's on top of her. And she uses his cuffs that he was going to use on on her. She handcuffs him handcuffs to the stove. Him to the stove. But he does stab her as well yes, yeah. during this sequence. So she's like huddled in a corner crying. Obviously, she's she might die. She's injured very badly. And he, he rips rips the the stove away from which Chris says couldn't really light on fire. Well, not with a muzzle flash. <laughs> We've talked about this before and about like gas rich environments and sparks. They just like like your phone. You can't be on your phone near a gas tank or whatever. Yeah, you can. It's not gonna like you could try and fail to do that. Like it's just not gonna work that way. The lighter that he has will light it though right so there's gas leaking in this room and this is when alex cross shows up this is also when i wrote wait a minute my dude (laughs) aren't those your cuffs don't you have the keys who knows who knows of course he has the keys (laughs) but as soon as he took them out and tried to use them on her they became just cuffs an item to be used in this interaction, if, not an item that's possessed by somebody. And if you're wondering how Morgan Freeman figured it out, by his handwriting. Yeah, he does this little squiggly line under his signature for no good goddamn reason <laughs> that he also did when he signed a letter to Morgan Freeman taunting him earlier on in the movie. Why the fuck would he do that? And they line up perfectly. He does this like little squiggle knows, and two dots or whatever. Everybody knows you put uh, magazine words on yes. paper. Yes, okay, yeah, no, that's true. otherwise they can match up your handwriting. I thought Carrie Elvis was a pro. I thought he was a player of the game, as they said. Right, 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 right. Real student of the game, and he likes to play. But it's like, oh, we were able to identify you by the way that you dotted your I's in your signature, even though there are no I's in your name. Like, that's what it felt like. Huh? <laughs> Why the fuck is he doing a little signature calling card mark in both his everyday Joe signature and his sinister serial killer signature? It can signature? be hard to remember. It's I guess. It's just, long, it's just it a natural moment. It took me a long time moment. to change my last name when I wrote it down. 
Uh, but so the way he prevents, so it's like a stalemate. He has the lighter. Don't you mind fuck me? <laughs> if you do this, no one will ever understand. Oh, don't mind fuck me! No, no, no I'm not, Nick. I'm not. <laughs> Alex Cross has the gun. Oh, and the muzzle flash will set it off. We'll kill everyone in here with a big explosion. So, so thinking quickly, as he's about to light the lighter, Cross grabs milk, a quart of milk that's just sitting on the table, shoves the gun into it, and fires that, suppressing the muzzle flash and preventing it from setting off the gas. If it would have set off the gas, then yes, that would have been a very clever solution to that. Able to still, like, out here, pointing in an odd direction through milk, hit him right in the head. Yes. <laughs> Carrie Ellis is dead. And, like, just end of movie. Doesn't the movie just fucking end right there? Pretty much. Anything else to say about Kiss the Girls? I mean, that's the that's another problem. It's very one, two, go. Yeah. Done. Uh-huh. You know? I feel like looking at Morgan Freeman try to solve a murder in a serial killer thriller just made me pine for the type of feeling you get when you watch Seven. That you just do not get this when you watch not this movie. Get to that level. No. No. This is very mediocre seven. Yeah. And yeah, it it is disappointing. It feels like it's definitely just going through the motions. I want to watch Alex Cross now, the Tyler Perry version. Because I wonder what an Alex Cross experience in the modern day looks like. Mm-hmm. But that. I feel like there's a lot to be explored here, and I don't think that Morgan Freeman or Ashley Judd or even Carrie Elwes, I don't think any of them did a bad job. No. I just think that the movie just wasn't super it, – it it was the 90s. Yeah. I, it's just they're, they're if just you don't know what I mean like by this. that, uh-huh. yeah, it just – he's a hard cop. Yeah. Who saves the day. And that's kind of all it was. And that was a big thing in the 90s. Think about the type of movies that they churned out in the 80s. Right? This is the 90s version of that. (laughs) It's very paint by numbers. Yes. Nobody's putting some thought and consideration into movies like this unless they're like really serious, you know, auteurs. It might have simply been that it was the, I've never read the books, so I have no idea. It might have simply been that it was the 90s and they were too afraid to explore the side of the uh, serial killer. That might be it. Don't get me wrong, there are movies that did that, but they were very fringe. Right, but this got really big because of movies like Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. which came out half a decade before this. And Seven, which came out two years before this. So they were making those movies. This is the soft rock version of that. Yes, very, very much so. It's a wannabe. It's the dad version. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Smooth jazz. (laughs) Okay, so what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? How do you think reviewers felt about it? Now, to be fair, that does open it up to reviewers from modern day as well. Oh, so it's both. Well, it always will be. That's what Rotten Tomatoes is. I'm going to probably guess it was a lot higher back in its day than it is now. I'm going to guess like a 58. 
1933. Wow. Detective Alex Cross makes his inauspicious cinematic debut in Kiss the Girls, a clunky thriller that offers few surprises. It's a cheating movie is what it cheats. <laughs> if you need to cheat, then don't do it. Don't make the movie. Uh, Metacritic of 46, which is close to right down the middle. And a cinema score of B+. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's overrated or underrated, though? It's underrated. Okay. What would you give it? I'm going to give it a 54. Yeah. I mean, it's like we said before, it's certainly not bad. It's very bland. It's just a nothing of a movie. Yeah. There's no spice. Uh Uh-huh. I wanted more. Just a tease. Mm -hmm. But not in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to go straight down Main Street. 50. Ah, right up Main Street. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's an okay movie. And it's inoffensive, but it's untitillating, if that's a word. <laughs> yeah. So that is 1997's Kiss the Girls. Maybe we'll pick up with Alex Cross later. There are a lot of other thrillers we could watch before more of this, but who knows? I'd like to try to stay on the scarier side of things. Yes, for sure. Seven, uh, I felt, was much scarier than this. Very much so. Yeah, if you're if you're looking for a movie to watch instead of this, watch Seven, yes. watch Silence of the Lambs. Yes. He didn't say the movie we're about to watch, did you notice? <laughs> We haven't talked about how we feel about this movie yet. Kelsey. Yeah. Our modern film. Yeah. 2021's The Black Phone. Uh Uh-huh. Written by Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, based on the short story The Black Phone by Joe Hill, son of Stephen King. Directed by Scott Derrickson, starring Mason Thames, Madeline McGraw, Ethan Hawke, and Jeremy Davies. Scott Derrickson, uh, he directed... The first Doctor Strange movie, but obviously not the second one. Uh, He also did, in the realm of movies that we would watch for this show, he did Sinister with Ethan Hawke. Which... Which we turned off. Yes. And he did Exorcism of Emily Rose, which... Which we've heard good things about. No, I've seen. Oh. Okay. I might have even seen twice. Oh. All right. That's the one where there's like a legal battle. It has the chick from... um, I've never seen Dexter. Um, but anyway, yeah. Okay. So let's break this to the audience right now. I know there's enthusiasm for Sinister out there. We didn't like it. We disliked it so hard that we turned it off. Yeah. It felt like it had all the trappings of a compelling horror movie that was actually legitimately scary with... None of the execution. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And the, I don't think that was Ethan Hawke's fault. It wasn't. I, Ethan I, Ethan, I love job. Ethan Hawke. Love him. He's great. It's just not our kind of movie. Like, I look at a movie like this that is just dead fucking serious, and they have a, a villain like, what's his name? Bagul in Sinister. I think that's his name. Where, with a very obviously sinister looking mask, hence the name, but it's like his actual face. He's a demon that looks like that. And it's like, no, I don't buy it. You created a demon that looks like somebody that was trying to make a villain for a horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, that's what that looks like. You want you want a face that looks absolutely terrifying that's along the lines of Bagul, but I totally buy into it because it's like built into the nature of the movie is terrifier. 
that we still haven't seen fucking him. clown looks absolutely terrifying and it looks effective because it feels like somebody might dress up like that to scare people meanwhile it's like i don't know this is like an it feels very emo like the way that you know it's affected it it puts on airs that's what it feels like in sinister it does not feel like that in terrifier and with the kids and the home movies and it's just like no, oh, you know what's really creepy? Home movies. You know what's really creepy? Kids. You know what's really creepy? A demon with a face like this. And it's like, come on. There's like no heart. There's no soul to this. And maybe it makes up for it in the second half. And the reason I say we need to break this to you is because, like I said, I know there's a lot of love for that movie out there. I don't begrudge you that love. I don't think you're an idiot for liking it. I don't know because we never finished it. It just is not our cup of tea. So I'm sorry I have to tell you that right now because I know people want us to watch it. I don't see us watching it anytime soon. (laughs) Uh, He also did Hellraiser Inferno, which is one of the newer Hellraiser movies. Mm. Probably a bad one. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, we haven't seen it. Kelsey, what is the black phone about? A child abductor, serial killer. Uh, is kind of wreaking havoc on this town. The souls of these dead kids are kind of stuck in the room and can communicate to the last one through a phone. Now, before I knew anything about this movie, I just saw the trailer and I just thought like one kid was talking to him through the phone where I said, oh, it sounds like the devil's backbone. Hmm. You know, like it sounds like that sort of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. where the dead kid helps the living kids fight back against the killer who Mm -hmm. killed the dead kid, you know? Reading up on this one, I come to find out that that's one of the influences for this film is The Devil's Backbone. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I felt connections to a lot of things. Coraline, because it has the ghosts of the dead kids Uh, that have been killed before. Uh Did you mention that at the time, too? I think you might have. I don't know. Uh, Well, I told you that I knew that this reminded me of a movie, and that was one of them. Mm -hmm. But there is another movie that I cannot recall what the fuck it is. Uh Uh-huh. Things that they're being told from people from another dimension or the dead or whatever come back later in a sense that makes sense and it works with the scene that's happening once you have all the information at the end it's like a bunch of puzzle pieces and they come together and it for the life of me i cannot think of what movie it is the kind of exact same thing happens but then also of course the big mask Mm -hmm. reminded me of american horror story the circus season uh with the clown and what's funny about that is yeah tell me about that he originally that character is supposed to be a clown because he's supposed to be like John Wayne Gacy uh and he's supposed to be a big fat clown just like John Wayne Gacy and the problem here is well I can't do a clown because my dad wrote Pennywise I can't make that connection yeah and so instead he has sinister balloons (laughs) <laughs> and a young girl with a psychic power. Yes, and they he takes kids through with a van, very much like Doctor Sleep. Yes, and Rose in that movie wears a top hat. Mm-hmm. Kidnaps a kid after a baseball game. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of connections. <laughs> but yeah, this is very obviously like you watch this movie. It even feels it just oozes Stephen King light. 
A little bit. Mm-hmm. Like there it's was tone, not enough it's, supernatural stuff, I felt. Well, even still, there's a little bit of supernatural stuff. But yeah, it it did feel like it could have been a Stephen King movie. Absolutely. 100%. Its characters which, weren't spouting catchphrases or anything. Which but. I guess is probably a testament to this guy's writing. I haven't read yeah. it. I assume that I'm going to read it. I assume that this means that, you know, he's a talented writer. If if when you watch it, you're like, oh, it felt like a Stephen King story. And, you know, you can say, well, he's stealing from his dad. Well, anyone can steal from his dad. Right. He doesn't have to be his son to steal from right. his dad. He grew up with a storyteller, and that storyteller was Stephen King. It's right. going to have an impact yes. on what he does. Yes. For sure. Yes. So the movie is available to rent. It is still $20 to rent because it's in theaters. But you can buy it for 25 Should people watch The Black Phone? Go into it with low expectations. I think you should see it, but go into it. Do not go into it with the big hype that this movie yeah. is getting. Oh, for sure. I am shocked at the hype this movie is getting. Yes. Not that it's bad. It's I don't bad. think it's bad. I just, at the end of the movie, I'm like, oh, that was enjoyable. But not anywhere near as good as people are making it out to be. Yeah. Like, I don't. I don't get that. Maybe it's a refreshing thing for some people. Like, it's nice to see something like this in theaters Where again. It, I or guess maybe, but, or like maybe that because it's victim forward. But I'm like, yeah, you it know is what? very victim Fresh forward. Fresh was victim forward, and nobody uh-huh. seemed to give a shit about that. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I will say, don't spend $20 to rent this movie. Yeah, I wouldn't spend 20 bucks on this movie, no. If you're going to spend that much money to see the movie, do it because you're going to the theaters to see it and you're going to have a theater experience I and you're going to have popcorn. I would want to watch this in, and, a movie, in a theater. This yeah. is not a theater movie to me. Uh, that's fair. I'm just saying that if the only that's the only context in which I would spend that much money on this movie. This is not a movie I would find to be fun to watch in a theater or scary enough to see in a theater. Yeah. It's kind of just a lot of... It's very Trauma? sad. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very a, sad. It's a very dramatic, traumatic film. And that was dramatic and traumatic. Yes. <laughs> like we say, just in comparison to the outsized fervor for this movie, it's not as good as all that. But if somebody asked me, hey, you see Black Phone? What'd you think? It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 go ahead and see it. Uh, don't spend $20 renting it. But see it, yeah, for sure. That's that's what I would say. That's my impression. Would you agree, or do you have a different take on that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2021's The Black Phone. Would you like to see a magic trick? Yeah. Tell me your name. Taylor. I was really starting to like you, Finny. I almost let you go. Don't hang up. Who are you? You know all our names. It doesn't work. Hang it up. I made you some breakfast. What'd you put in that? Salt and pepper. 
have you seen this boy? My brother, he was taken. By a man with black balloons. <laughs> I had a dream about it. Please let the dream be real. You're getting out of here. How? There's a combination lock. What's the combination? Creepiest damn thing. The Black Phone. Rated R. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does the Black Phone begin? In 1978. The whole movie takes place in this time period. Yeah, I gotta tell you, the whole movie takes place in 1978, folks. This is not a setup for what comes later. Because I thought for sure that Mason Thames... Thames? Thames. Is Is it like a British thing, right? I don't know. I thought for sure he was playing a young Ethan Hawke. I saw one trailer. Yeah. I saw one trailer a long time ago, and I was like, okay, I want to see the movie. I don't need to see anything else. And I actively avoided anything else. So I was not being inundated with the fact that this kid was the hero of the movie. (laughs) Uh, And he just sort of looks like he would play a young Ethan Hawke. And I thought for sure this is setting up why he becomes the grabber. Mm -hmm. But no. No. You'll be a ways into the movie going, is this just the whole movie? (laughs) It is. Once the grabber shows up and you're like, oh my God. I thought maybe, like, kids, when he was a kid, other kids were getting grabbed, and then he, like, started doing that when he got older, but no. No. Nope. Not at all. The whole movie takes place in North Denver, 1978. He is setting himself apart by putting it in Denver. Instead of Instead of Boulder, I guess. Yes. (laughs) Like, seriously, you have the entire United States to work with. Just stay away from Maine. Hmm? Stay away from Colorado. (laughs) He couldn't do it. No. No. Anyway. But so, yeah, we meet our main kid whose name is... Finny. That's right. Finn. Oh, at the end he goes by Finn. Yeah, he's grown up and he becomes Finn. Yeah, Right. We'll call him Finn, Finny, whatever. Yeah. So, he is just a regular, everyday kid. He has an alcoholic abusive father... Uh, so yeah. that's another Stephen King element. Yes. Played by a guy you already don't like because he was the coward in Saving Private Ryan that gets his buddy killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeremy Davies playing Terrence the dad. I know I know him for more stuff than that. He was in American Gods as a character called Jesus Prime. Mm-hmm. He was in Hannibal for two episodes. Mm. And Lost for 34. But I don't think I got that far into Lost. <laughs> but so we get to see that, you know, he lives in a regular kind of neighborhood. There's a bunch of different types of bullies. There are good guy bullies and there's bad guy bullies. And uh, yeah. our main character is friends with one of the good guy bullies. Robin, because he tutors him. Yes. And prevents him from getting his ass kicked by his dad because... uh, Not by his dad, but by bullies. No, I'm saying he prevents Robin from getting his ass kicked by his dad. Can we talk about the kid acting real quick? What do you think about the child acting? 
The main kid, it went in and out. Sometimes he was good. Sometimes he wasn't so good. I would say on the whole, he was good. But yes, I see what you're saying. There were times when it was, oof, yeah, oof, we could not get to that emotional level, could we? Uh-huh. But I thought on the whole, I thought it was decent. You know, I've seen better kid actors, but I thought this was decent. I didn't believe Robin. And I feel like Gwen, his little sister was too precocious. And I understand that that's like a, she's growing up in an abusive household without her mother, needs to take care of her father. She's growing up fast. That doesn't mean she's more educated and has a larger vocabulary and point of view and stuff like that. Like it's, there are things that kids learn at a very young age on how to act, but not necessarily how to talk. You know what I mean? Like it's, it felt a little king-like. Well, that's what he grew up with. I right, guess. and I have no way of knowing if I would have identified that separately, independently, of knowing that this was a Joe Hill story. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, Robin protects him from the other bullies. When they are cornering him in the bathroom, Robin shows up having just beat the fucking shit out of another guy, smashed his fucking face in, and he goes to the, to the bathroom to wrap his knuckles because they're all bloody. He protects... And he tells him, you're going to have to stand up for yourself one of these days. Yes. And he also, if that reminds you of the scene from American History X where he helps the kid in the beginning of the film. He's like, you have to learn to fucking stand up for yeah. yourself. That totally, totally <laughs> reminded me of that. You got to fucking stand up for yourself. In this bathroom scene when he saves the kid from getting his ass kicked. He says that he just saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he talks yeah. about it as if he really, really likes it. I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre Friday night. You seen it? That movie's radar. My dad would never take me to see that. My uncle takes me to the drive-in. We see everything. But man, that movie, it's the best ever. And I'm confused, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre... I feel like this movie is trying to emulate that. It wants you to feel some way about these characters, to get to know them, to like them, okay? And to feel sorry for them. To have a real wacky, weird-ass killer. But in Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Oh, and another thing that they tried to emulate it with is... It wants to hint at really terrible, horrific violence, but it does not want to show that to you. Which I thought that it did a pretty decent job of that. Mm-hmm. But this killer, we, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you don't get a ton of information, but the information you get is pretty substantial in that you know what their motivations are, you know why they're doing what they're doing, etc. Yeah. Whereas this is not clear in that way, and, like, that is the biggest target that you missed if you were trying to do something in the form of Texas Chainsaw. Both of these movies... Mm-hmm. had characters that were villain characters that were underdeveloped. Although I would say this movie did a more compelling job of getting me, like, interested in the the villain character. He was a much more compelling villain. But I was compelled and given nothing. Not even a little bit of a taste to tease me. You get basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And again, like, you might think, well, you know... He's obviously just a crazy person who likes to beat little boys and kill them. And probably there's something sexual to it. Probably. And, like, you can come up with, well, maybe his father did the same thing to him, you know? Maybe that's why the brother has a drug problem. Right. You know, Uh like, maybe. But we don't know. Mm -hmm. 
Do you want to tell us about the little sister and her psychic ability? Yeah, which I, is totally pointless. <laughs> yes, I mentioned before that, of course, we have a young child, in this case a young girl, who has psychic abilities. Another compelling story as far as the relationship that she has with her father, she has dreams. Allah, the little girl from Child- Children of the Corn, and just like Children of the Corn, worthless. Yeah, po- <laughs> totally pointless. A lot of this movie, while her brother is going to be abducted, we're going to be following around how Gwen is handling it and how she wants to help her brother and how she's trying to have these visions but can't. They're just these visions of the future. We get little glimpses of them. We see her dreams. But they're not all, like, exactly what happens. It's just ways of communicating things. Like, if you've ever played Mysterium, you know you don't get the full full image of what's going on. Yes. Her mother also had some kind of shining and eventually killed herself. She saw things and she heard things and she just became so convinced that her dreams meant something and eventually they told her to do things. Terrible things. Until she took her own life. But they weren't real, sweetheart. They just weren't real. Her dream was of black balloons. And if you're thinking, oh, no. We have a clown with balloons. Kind of. It's not a clown. It's a magician. But it was originally a clown. Yeah. uh And like, look, like he was he full on was like, I can't do a clown because all my everybody's gonna be like, oh, he stole it from his dad. And I'm like, okay. So why the balloons? (laughs) Okay, but but the balloons do have a practical function. Although them being black is kind of weird. It's just, it seems like it's just an aesthetic choice for the movie, which yes. I don't like. But the the balloons have a practical purpose, and we'll say what it is in a little bit. So the whole movie starts with Finn, a, as a pitcher in a Little League game, he loses out to this Asian kid named Bruce. It's the 70s. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I want to see Bruce Lee movie one day. Like, um, maybe it comes on TV, you know? But the kid says to him... He says something about, like, you have a killer arm, you almost got me. Man, your arm is mint. You almost had me. Because Finn almost struck him out, but he didn't. The kid got a home run. That kid ends up kidnapped, and nobody knows what happened to him. And they start telling us the stories about this grabber character who's grabbing kids. Later on, we're going to see Robin walk seemingly right fucking up to the grabber's van. But we don't see what happens, and he goes missing. So when he's walking home with his sister and his sister's like, it's Friday, I'm spending the night at my friend's house or whatever. uh, And she just walks away. Finn says, that's fine, I'll take care of dad. He gets approached by Ethan Hawke. Until the end of the movie, you will never see his full face. Here, he looks super pale. Like he has white makeup on. Yeah, and he has sunglasses on and he's wearing a top hat. Does he have sunglasses? Yes. I thought that in this one shot, you can see it, but it's so brief, and he has such white stuff on his face, yeah. and the coloring is so washed out in this scene. I seem to I remember. Like, it's, they're trying to not let you see his face, right? but well, there's no reason yeah. not to. Like, you think that there's got to be some kind of reason that he wants to cover up his face, but there's not. So is there some sort of trauma there? Was he, right. was he told there was? 
tell me that story. I think, I think and we'll talk about the masks in a little bit. Uh, I think he either emotes or becomes the grabber through the mask. Uh, we could talk about that specifically when we see the mask for the first time. We don't see the mask yet. Well, but also you need to remember the only reason he's wearing a mask in this movie is because he was supposed to be done up face makeup like clown, like John yeah, Wayne Gacy. Yeah, so they replace it with so the mask. So they replaced it with the mask, making it seem like there's a reason he's wearing I it. I 100% agree. He's out in public and he's not wearing the mask. And that would make sense because the mask is kind of like scary looking or whatever. But he's dressed up like a magician. The side of his van says abracadabra. It's not inconspicuous. Does Is that how he gets his money? Is he actually a magician? And if so, why is he taking his work van out to abduct people? That would be very easy to identify you. This is all leading up to something that I think is actually clever. Which is that he drops stuff on the ground. He's, oh, my silly me. Oh, I'm a magician. Would you like to see a magic trick? You know, and when he grabs Finney, he pulls him into the back of the van and he's surrounded by black balloons. And so it's really hard to make out what he's doing. And that has a practical function, right? He prevents him from uh, he sprays him in the face with something, knocking him out and also partially blinding him. And then he struggles with him underneath the balloon, so it just looks like a man struggling with balloons that are getting out of his van. And that practically is actually really interesting, but he's still walking around abducting people without any face coverings with a top hat and his work van that has his brand plastered across the side. Like, I need a little bit of balance there. <laughs> There is no way to believe in this guy as yeah. a killer. Uh, it is absolutely absurd when you find out that he has a brother who is staying with him at the time. Yeah. It, it is absolutely mm -hmm. ludicrous that th that he would expect his brother to not find out on top of the fact that his brother is uh, between jobs, so he has time on his hands, so he's obsessed with finding this murderer. And supposedly on coke the whole time. Even if he wasn't, you can make the argument that they that he fucking soundproofed the room. That's fucking bullshit. Right. He is waiting to to beat this kid up mercilessly, mm -hmm. and his brother's asleep in the other room. Right. He's waiting for the kid to come upstairs so he can beat him. It's so dumb. Yeah. It it is a little bit. It's not thought through. I think this has the problem of a lot of horror movies in that it's style over substance. Yes. I will say I really enjoyed that style, but the substance was lacking. If you can get me to forget about the substance, I will go 100% style all fucking day long. But it, the substance is lacking so much that I can't forget about the fact that it's negative substance. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's Rainforest Cafe. It's all ambiance. No food. <laughs> the food fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I went there once, but I don't need to go back. Let's just mention he is watching The Tingler at yes. one point, uh -huh. which I've never seen. Neither but as far I. as I know, the whole point of watching that is to have the 4D experience. Right. So I imagine that, but he like seems afraid, which I think is really cute because uh -huh. kids do. They get afraid of stupid shit when they're kids. I can tell you, I didn't watch horror movies for a very long time. 
But so because the little girl has these dreams, she went and spoke to Bruce's younger sister after he got taken, Mm -hmm. which causes her, the little sister of Bruce, to go and talk to the cops. And so the cops are like, oh, shit, let's go and use this little girl. Yeah. uh Who says she had a dream that included black balloons. Well, I guess, you know, I guess that is... Something they found at the scene, so... But they never told anybody about the black balloon, so how did you know? Right, In so my dreams. They talked to her, but they also talked to the dad, which causes the dad to freak the fuck out and to beat his little girl. And during this beating session, we're going to get a lot of exposition. And you're just like, we could have done this differently, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. It's, it's really heavy-handed. There's a weird tiny, it's tiny, but it's like a little tiny subplot about her talking to God, but like keeping it a secret. Well, yeah, because she doesn't want her dad to find out. Why? Because that's how she thinks she gets her dreams. And he tells her to suppress the dreams. Oh, okay. So in her child mind. She thinks it's Jesus giving her the dreams. Yes. And that her dad would be mad that she's talking to Jesus because Jesus is the one giving her the dreams. Not not the mad talking to Jesus <laughs> thing, but mad that she's asking for the dreams because he wants them to go away. But it's I was, the dreams, not Jesus. It's like, she knows that she's going to get in trouble for talking, and it's like, why wouldn't you pray in your head? Right. Such a weird thought. Kids are taught to pray out loud, man. There is quite a bit of violence, mostly between children on children. Yes. We do see a fight scene where Robin kicks the shit out of this other kid, and he very specifically does it to draw blood. He wants the other kids to be afraid of him. But, like, it's a lot of, it's very violent. And then we get another scene where, well, now that Robin's been taken, the kids who were going to beat up our main kid can now. Yeah. And the little sister shows up and hits one kid in the face with a rock, and you're just yeah. like, "Holy shit!" But then it's again, kind you of a remember, brutal fight scene. Yeah, this is the same. This is Stephen King's son, right? Yeah, uh huh. Where there's a Very, lot like, of descriptive, a lot of violence between kids. Uh-huh. Like if you think about the apocalyptic rock fight. Yes, from <laughs> that's it. exactly what I was thinking of. Yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, I really liked the fight, and one point that they that that kind of stands out and it's meant to you're not supposed to miss it the, the movie's putting it right in front of your face is that kids get like out of the fight so it's three guys that are beating up finney and then when his sister comes by she picks up a rock and hits one of the dudes who's on top of him right in the side of the head right and it starts like oh, i thought she did it right in the face it starts like gushing blood from his temple or and whatever she kicks him yeah and so he is out of the fight now everyone kind of agrees He's been taken out. We're not going to keep beating him up, unlike what Robin did earlier, right? And he just sits up against the the fence, like nursing his well, woman no and panting and stuff like that. No one was beating him up except for the sister, who then gets herself beaten up because she throws her rock. Yes, she gets oh, rid of her weapon. My God! But my point is, nobody tries to get him involved anymore, and he doesn't try to get involved either. To the point where, when she starts beating other people up, and then they take her out. And they violently attack her. And she crawls away from the fight. Okay, I'm out of the fight now. It's almost like a game. You know, like, well, I've been tagged. I'm out. You know, and then there, there's, she sits up against the fence right next to the guy. She just bludgeoned with a rock. And they're just, like, watching the rest of the fight now play out. Like, together. Just sitting next to each other and not fighting each other or anything like that. While Finney gets the shit beat out of him some more. This is all leading up to his abduction. 
Once he has been abducted, we get some very similar scenes to what we saw in Fresh. Uh, you know, yeah. all the movies where people are abducted and they wake up to find the person sitting there staring at them mm-hmm. to tell them all the creepy reasons why they've taken them, right? Like, this is a very familiar scene. The weird thing I thought, mm-hmm. and this gets brought up, like, eh, two or three times, Ethan Hawke is aware that the phone works. Yes. He thinks it's static electricity. Yeah, but he also kind of knows that it's the dead kids. Yes, he doesn't want to believe it. Yeah, it's, it's guilt, right. right? So he hides that guilt away from himself. Right, I guess. But at the same time, he doesn't want the kid to pick up the phone. Because if it's real, then he could do exactly what he does. Mm-hmm. And that, again, allude- alludes to a story that you're not telling me. Right. Like, there is, like, a lot of backstory here. Why is he so afraid of the phone? What has happened in the past? He keeps hearing it ring, but then he doesn't answer it, and he tries to pretend like it's, like he says, the electricity. Why? What happened? I want to know. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to tell you anything. I was down here once when it rang. Ooh, <laughs> creepiest damn thing. I think it's static electricity that does it. It went off us right next to it. I picked it up without thinking to see if anyone was there. Was there? No. I think he is dismissive of it. I don't think that there is a lot of story there. I think that he the phone rings and he answers it and it makes him paranoid and he doesn't hear anything because we will find out that every dead kid has been trying to communicate through this phone every single time they're taken from the grabber, and no kid hears the dead kids. It's not until Finney, which is the closest thing I can get to the fact that this this sort of psychic kid subplot is important, is because the kid's mother had this psychic ability. Through Gwen, we see that it is inherited, and now Finney is the only kid in the history of these kidnapped kids who actually hears the dead kids through the phone. Did the phone ring for you? It rang, but none of us heard it. Just you. The grabber hears the phone, too, but he doesn't want to believe it. So I think, honestly, he answers the phone. The fact that the phone rings makes him paranoid because he has this guilt. And so it's much easier just to write it off and not think about it. Whereas later on in the movie, he's going to be forced to think about it. And that's going to fuck with him emotionally. And he obviously has emotional problems because he insists on wearing this mask. What do you think of the mask? So the first time we see him, he's wearing is a top half, which stays the same where it has, like, horns and the eyes and everything, and then a bottom half, which is, like, the nose and the mouth, and this first one has no mouth. I have no mouth, and I must scream. And this is when he's just watching Finny. What do you think of it? I think that it is a creepy mask. I think mm-hmm. they're all creepy masks. And they are used to show his emotion. But they only work because the movie makes sure that they work. The kid could have responded to all these scenes in different ways, and if he had, the, then his fucking mask wouldn't have made sense. Yes, I see what you're saying. So that bothered me. I mean, it's like I said, it's fun for the movie, but here's the thing. If that's what you want to do, like we said, if you want to go full ambiance, 
then go full ambiance. Don't make it seem like he knew exactly what he was going to do. Make it more whimsical. I make it more that like it almost it changes if he makes the wrong move. I don't know. Do something other see than him change the mask at some point when things change. Yes. Go the way he's not anticipating. See, I think that that is a good idea because I, I don't have a problem with the fact that he always seems to have a mask for the emotion ahead of time because I think he's anticipating. Well, yeah. He, he knows how this goes and how it's gone every single time. And he knows that these kids are going to disappoint him. So just like with Kiss the Girls, they get killed or punished when they disappoint him. And he wants a perfect kid, but he also, in the back of his mind, wants to play Punish the Boy or whatever it's called. Naughty boy. He wants to beat these children for being naughty. So he needs to have a mask that has a frowny face on it. And we'll see he stays out of the light at one point later on. He stays out of the light, not revealing his disappointed face until he's decided, ha he's done something. And then he steps into the light and reveals his disappointed face. I think that's literally him preparing to be disappointed because he wants to be disappointed and he expects to be disappointed. And just like when he's sitting up at the top of the stairs and he falls asleep, he's wearing his disappointed face because if you see my mask... I will be disappointed. Right. But so what you're saying is that if he had told him the truth, he wouldn't have come out of the shadow. He would have been like, I'm going to stay here because now it's inappropriate. I agree. That's where it fails. So I think it would have been interesting, to your point, to see him change masks because his mood changes unexpectedly. I think that would be interesting. The masks were designed by Tom Savini, which I think is pretty cool. I think this this mask is really fucking cool. I like it a lot. I like that it comes in two parts. They reminded me a lot of the ones from The Purge. Which is funny because Ethan Hawke's oh, in yeah, The Purge. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I, I still like the idea of the interchangeable pieces that interlock together depending on his mood. And there's only three of them. The top always stays the same. The bottom is either no mouth, a, a frowny mouth of, of disappointment, and a broad grin. So the next time we're going to see him, he's wearing the broad grin, and that's when he's trying to, like, make friends with him. And again, if you're again thinking, mm, doesn't that remind you a lot of uh, American Horror Story? And wasn't he a clown? And you're like, yes. 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 No, it just, it, no matter what they did, mm-hmm. they couldn't seem to get away from what they were trying to get away from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go over all the different things that the kids tell him to do. Okay, yeah. So he gets the phone. We've already established that the grabber says, stop fucking answering the phone. There's nothing there. It's just static electricity building up in the basement. You know, that's all it is. I think it's static electricity that does it. It went off right next to it. I picked it up without thinking to see if anyone was there. Was there? No. And he writes it off. But throughout, he will continue to answer the phone, and then he'll start hearing from these kids. So walk us through this. So the first one is Bruce, the kid from the baseball game. Mm -hmm. And he tells him to start digging because he had found a tile that was loose, but he didn't have enough time to dig a hole. Okay? Now... I want to say a couple things about the way that they, they dealt, dealt with these kid conversations. When I was listening, the conversation did feel stilted. Yeah. 
And I knew that was going to go somewhere. And I was excited for where it went. And I wasn't let down with where it went. So no. that was good. I, I, I love it that. when it feels like something has been planned. You know something's going to come of it. But you don't necessarily know what. And then when it all comes together, it feels great. I think this movie does a good job of that. Yes. I'm gnawing. It's gnawing at my brain. Uh I know there's another movie that does this kind of similar thing Uh where they hear different parts of a conversation and it doesn't really make a lot of sense at the time, but it kind of works. Mm -hmm. And then later they put it together and it makes perfect sense. Can't think of what it is. Sure, it's a lot of movies. But yes, you said you said it at the time, and I was like, yeah, that does sound familiar. So you guys listening out there, if you know, send us a message on Twitter or at Pod Cemetery, or hop on our Discord, which you can find through our Patreon. Now, I don't know how I feel about seeing the kids. There are parts about it I like, but there are also parts about it I don't like. Would it have been creepier and better if you never, if if you didn't see them until later? Mm-hmm. Yes. But at the same time, do some of the kids give decent performances here? Yes. Do some yeah. of them not give such decent performances here? Yes. They also want to play the shock factor game here, like yes. they do in The Sixth Sense. You know, yes. like I said about, like, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They want you to know there's violence well, they don't necessarily want to show you the violence. This is the devil's backbone where the first kid you see like that has a wound in his head and he's obviously dead. You know, it doesn't do that cool smoking blood effect, which was awesome in the devil's backbone. Come on, I'll show you where my dad keeps his gun. Hey, come on. I'll show you where my dad keeps his gun. Come on. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. Yes. <laughs> very, very much like that. I did appreciate that when you do see them, you still hear them through the phone, and they're not directly interacting with Finney, at least. I did appreciate all of these things. That said, I really, really like a moment later on when the grabber is confronted by the terrible things he's done to these children. He sees them, all of them together. And if that was the first time you saw them dead like that, would have been much more effective if you hadn't seen them up to that point. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There are things they could have done with that. I think that having them stop the girl, even though, again, even though it's achieves, accomplishes nothing, but uh, I think having them... Or is if, that what I'm remembering, where they show up in front of Gwen later They on. shock her and she falls off. Do they bike. not show up in front of the grabber? No, they do. Okay. okay. Uh, and it's, it is important because the, the movements that they do... When Uh they're doing the kind of pantomime acting while they're on the phone with him, they will do those movements with Ethan Hawke. And again, I think that that's cool, Uh but would it have been more effective if we didn't see them until later? Maybe. I don't know. One thing we haven't talked about is that they forget who they are, they forget their names, and they respond differently to when they're told (laughs) their name. But it it also kind of explains the fact that they repeat specific things over and over again. Bruce repeats the things that he said to Finney multiple times. You almost got me, or you almost had me, or whatever. You almost met. You almost had me. You, You have a killer arm. And then Robin says, one day you're going to have to stand up for yourself. Robin, you remember what I told you? That I needed to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Before that. That someday I should stand up for myself. Someday is today, Finn. Today is the day you stop taking shit from anybody. That will all come back later. But it's like because 
the more they're dead, the more their identity and existence deteriorates, right? And I think that's a cool idea. Sure. Okay. And some kids get mad when he tries to tell them who some they are. Some do. Some are indifferent. Yeah, some are uh-huh. happy to hear it. I like that there's some variety yeah, depending but- on the kid. Can we talk about something that they only kind of hint at, and I think you can read into it a little bit more, is that when Finney identify before he's talked to any kids he identifies you're the one who grabbed robin and bruce the grabber says that was someone else you're the one who killed the others bruce robin that wasn't me that was someone else i will never make you do anything that you won't like is he a different person when he's wearing the different masks? I don't think so. So what is that about? Is that him again suppressing, like, oh, I need to keep him happy. We need to be friends. Maybe I won't have to punish him. Well, because remember the first time he meets him, he says, I'm I'm not going to do anything to you. Yeah. uh I'm not going to do anything to you. I think he fully believes that at that time because when he punishes people, he's a different person. I think he's just lying to him. Fair enough. There's no way to tell. The movie doesn't really lean one way or the other, except for here when he says that's somebody else. But again, like you say, he could just be lying to him. What do you think of Hawk as a villain, actually? We saw him recently in Moon Knight as a villain. It's not really fair to compare the two because he has way more to do in Moon Knight than he does here. Mm -hmm. Like Moon Knight gives you reasons for why he is the way that he is. That's a... That's a big problem. It's hard to judge a person when you're just an evil person. It's not compelling. Does he do anything terribly frightening? No. Does he try to do kind of a creepy voice? Yes. But does it sound manufactured to be creepy? Yes. And that's another problem. Mm -hmm. I kind of like his movements. I think his movements are kind of fun. Even when he's not moving, when he's just sitting there in the chair and he falls, falls asleep and he's topless and holding that belt. It's like... Yeah, I don't want that guy to wake up. The mask does a lot of the heavy lifting there, though, I think. Oh, totally. The Uh mask does a lot of work here. And that's another problem. It's not Hawk, it's the mask. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think his movements are good. His movements work with the mask. I think that's a good work character work. The the voice was too manufactured, and I just didn't get enough out of him. He's just an evil person, and there's just not a lot going on there. So he was obviously in Sinister. Yeah. With the same director. Yeah. And he was offered this part, and I guess he almost didn't do it. He told Deadline Hollywood that he didn't want to be, like, remembered as, like, a villain. But then, apparently, per Deadline, he changed his mind when he realized he was in his 50s. And he told them, quote, villains might be my future. I don't think it has to be. I really like Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke has lots of dad roles he can play. He does have a lot of... Remember Boyhood? Oh, God. Oh, God. I did not like that movie. Yeah, I didn't like it either. Mainly because, unfortunately, the kid grew up to be a bad actor. (laughs) So, Bruce tells him to dig. Then there is Billy the paper boy. Oh, your arm is mint is what Bruce says. I knew I wrote it down. Your arm is mint. You almost had me. That's when he tells him about digging the hole. Your arm is a mint. You almost had me. I'm glad it's you. Finny? Yeah? There's a dirt section of the floor in the hallway where the tile is loose. Okay. 
down underneath the foundation. I tried, but there wasn't time for me to dig up and out the other side. Will I have enough time? Billy tells him not to go fall into the trap of going upstairs when he leaves the door unlocked, which I thought was very, from somebody who's seen tons and tons of serial killer stuff, like I was like, that seems like it's a trap. Mm-hmm. But if I was a fucking kid in the 70s, yeah. I doubt I would have realized this that. Is, this is the newspaper boy, Billy. But yeah, he tells him it's a trap and he goes up. Anyway, but not like, all the way. Dumb asshole. He but, goes up yeah. to kind of like see if he can see, but he can't. So yeah, he doesn't. So go he out, doesn't go all the way. Which up. is good because we're shown that he is that Ethan Hawke is in fact waiting, and he is a yeah he is awake at that point because yes. it's almost immediately after he leaves the door open. It's not later. It's not until later that we see that he falls asleep waiting for him at one point. It's a long cable that he took from the wall. I want to say. And then he hid. He says what it is. I don't remember the specifics of it. We can put that line in. See the wall in front of you? See the wall separated from the floor? Yeah. I tore a long cable loose from down there. I kept it hidden. Well, he also uses the rug to to thread the cable up to get it. Yeah. And I was like, why not use just use that to like climb up? Right. Right. I was thinking the same. Yeah, yeah, it will fold, but you can climb up the rug better than you can. You know, just hope to climb up the wall. And he ends up ripping off the bars on the window. Now, this basement has, there's a bathroom down there and there's like walls. And so you go around a curve to go to the bathroom and that's where the hole is down this little hallway. And that's where all these rugs are in the bathroom. And he hides things there. And apparently Ethan Hawke doesn't really look around because I guess it's a control thing. Like maybe he just thinks he's in so much control. He doesn't, he just assumes there's no way anything's happening. Well, also he doesn't, he's only in, a, he's done this so quickly. That's the other thing. When did this guy randomly decide to take all these kids? Uh-huh. And why would he decide to take so many from the same area all like boom, boom, Super boom. quickly, like, yes. I feel like that would make you incredibly easy to find. We didn't hear about Pinball Vance. We didn't hear about the newspaper boy. But Bruce and Robin were like, yeah, right after each other. And then Finney. And it's like, you're a bad kidnapper. <laughs> How can you maintain this level of... Like, you need, a like, a refractory period. Where is his refractory period? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The point is, he wasn't expecting the kid to be there long enough to create an escape route. Right. That's why I think he doesn't give a shit what the kid's doing, because he knows that he's never going to make it out But he time. yanks the bars off the window there, and he never notices that. Yeah. That's pretty fucking dumb. Yeah. There are a couple of things that he does because we know that the grabber leaves the house and he does while the grabber's gone. And the next time the grabber comes down is when the climax happens. So the grabber never even has a chance to see it. But the window he does. Mm-hmm. And he never notices that, which is kind of weird, but whatever. But anyway, I have written down here that Gwen dreams of Billy. I don't know if that's accurate. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But either way, she's having these dreams, and it's kind of giving her little glimpses of things. Maybe this is how we see that these kids got abducted in the first place. But this is where Gwen's dad gets upset because the cops find out about the dreams, and they're very interested. This is where he says, Gwen's dad gets so upset about the dreams because her mom ended her own life because the things she saw and heard told her to do terrible things. Eventually, the cops will talk to a man named... 
Max. It's real dumb. And it is, this is full on. He took this from his dad. A character that you're supposed to put all your hope in is going to save the day. And then dies and doesn't. Although I guess that's not really Stephen King. That's the movie version of his his books. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, when uh, Once-His-Face shows up and gets an axe to the chest. Yeah, yeah, uh, (laughs) but that's what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And, okay, so first of all, it's totally pointless that he wants to find out about him because he's just going to die. He's Mm -hmm. just going to die. But more to the point... They should have taken it out completely because... It makes no, it's nonsense. It makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. Because... So the cops are going to talk to Max. And first of all, we don't see the cops talk to anybody else. So it just puts a huge spotlight on Max. That he's going to be important for some reason. He's figured out, based on where the kids are taken, and based on where he wouldn't be seen, and based on the times and all this stuff, he has to live somewhere within this area. And he's all coked out. I There's didn't a great even notice moment. the coke until Chris pointed it out. Yeah, because he says, oh, this is my brother's place. I'm actually between jobs and he's letting me stay here. And when the cops leave, they're like, you might want to clean up before your brother gets home. And he's like, what? And then he looks at the coffee table that the cop pointed at and there's lines of coke right there. But then after we meet him and he sits down and he starts to do the coke, the camera pans down below him and we're taken to Finney. Now, if that's literal, then Finney is underneath him. And that explains a couple of things. I will tell you right now, it is literal. Finney is literally underneath him. His brother is the grabber. Yes. <laughs> um, it explains why the basement had to be soundproofed. It also explains why he was nervous about going upstairs again or whatever, for whatever reason. There's a moment when Finney recognizes that there's somebody in the house with them, and that's why the grabber is nervous about something. So it explains all of that, but we will find out later that the grabber owns a second house. Where he buries the bodies. In the basement. Have your brother stay there. Yeah, but then you'd have to explain why he has a second house to his brother. Okay, then flip it. Have him stay in the house you know. Oh, trust me. I agree. This is really stupid. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Why would the you? The only reason they have a second house is so that they can have a thing at the end, which is totally taken from. The Silence of the Silence Lambs. Of the yes, Lambs. they want a Silence of the Lambs moment. And it's totally pointless. Yes. Again, because the kid's just going to save himself anyway. Yep, which is another reason. I have talked about this in the past. I absolutely hate it when people figure things out right at the exact moment where it doesn't matter that they figured it out. Then I don't care that you figured it out. In The Batman, the new movie, when he figures out the thing about the levees, right when that thing happens to the levees, oh, you might as well have not figured it out then. You're a shit detective. (laughs) You're a bad detective. People are like, oh, this is a really good detective story about Batman, finally. No, he is so bad that he finds out precisely when the whole rest of Gotham finds out. This is my point. It's another sort of thing where Gwen, with her premonitions, she's going to be racing to find her brother, and she's going to point the cops to the wrong fucking house. And so the cops don't save him. He saves himself. So it was pointless that she knew where he was. Rather, didn't know. It did nothing to help Finney. Yeah. Anyway. So... Griffin is the one that tells him that he is asleep 
Upstairs, he's again left the door ajar, hoping he'll come up, but he has fallen asleep this time. So Griffin tells him to go upstairs. And he knows the code. Yes, he writes the code somewhere. But he doesn't know... He knows all the numbers, but he doesn't know, like, how they are, like... The numbers are 23317, and Finney is like, is that 23317? Is it 23317? Is it 23317? Like, what is it? He's like, I don't fucking remember, because, again, they're losing everything about their memories and their identity and everything like that. So I think all of that ties in just fine, but why the grabber would never have seen the numbers written down on the wall... I guess it's kind of hidden, right? Something like that. Let's talk about why... Okay, so you know how you were talking about the the mask and how he has the one that's really upset? Mm -hmm. It's because the kid lies about his name. Why would the kid lie about his name? Why wouldn't he expect the grabber to know his name? Right. Why wouldn't... Why would he even care? Yeah, why bother lying? Right, it doesn't make any sense. the dumbest thing, and that's the only reason that he got to be upset, which is why he's wearing the mask, Mm -hmm. which again, if the kid had just been like, my name's this, what was the guy gonna do? He'd be like, just stay right over here. Well, then he could be disappointed that he didn't get to be angry, because that's his goal, remember, is to be disappointed. I have written down, yeah, when Finny lies about his name, the grabber comes out of the shadows to reveal he's been wearing the frown the whole time, and this is when I wrote down, he anticipated disappointment? Mm Mm-hmm. But maybe that is the case. Maybe that is true. He knew he'd lie to him, but why? Why would he ever lie to him? Yeah, uh-huh. For what reason? <laughs> so the guy has fallen asleep. Griffin told him he's fallen asleep upstairs, and he gives him the code, and he has just enough time to hopefully enter in the code into this kid's lock, because it belonged to the kid, and now the grabber's using it to lock his front screen door. And Max has no questions about this? Max, by the way, is James Ransone, Ransoni, whatever, Eddie Kasprak in the It movies. The, he's Eddie Kasprak? The, the, the new It movies. He's the adult Eddie Kasprak. Sorry, I didn't mean to get you excited. He's also in the Sinister movies. I thought that Chris meant the guy from the 80s. Yeah, no. <laughs> as an adult. 1990, I think, isn't it? Chris has got my hopes up. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Tore them down. I know that's exactly what happened to him. Like, oh no, wait, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> anyway, so he's able to 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 get to that lock and try a couple different versions of that combination before finally getting out. But the dog is awake. So um, it's barking, which causes Ethan Hawke to wake up. And we see him remove the top of the mask, which is the first time we see him put any of them on or off. It has, like, these leather straps. I think the mask is fucking cool. He never wears sunglasses with the mask like they have on the cover, which is why I think he does wear sunglasses in the beginning when he's not wearing the mask. And they're just conflating those two things. It's possible. It's possible. But so he chases after him. And Kelsey's like, why isn't he screaming? And he does right when she asks that. <laughs> Why is he? And then he does, but the music's really loud. And he chases after him with the van. And then but he, he doesn't scream when he's in the house, which would have told the brother. Yes. Which, but he didn't know what was going on. But with he that. was pretty sure there was somebody up there, yeah, but he didn't bother fair. to scream then. Or like right when he gets right out and he, he knows he's and, awake. And he's, he's running yeah, through a neighborhood. Uh-huh. He doesn't bother yeah. screaming until right before he gets taken. Right. And he pulls him into some bushes and holds a knife to his throat. It's like, you make a noise and I will kill you right now. Yeah, it's too bad because he didn't do it earlier. Right. And so people that had turned their porch lights on or whatever end up turning them off and he knows it's safe to take him back. And then the brother wakes up 
after they get home, after yeah. all of this chaos. Hey, what was that? Oh, nothing. Go to bed. But I'm not. But the kid's not making a noise. He right. He could the yell right there. then. But and, again, he threatened him with death if he did. And now he's just like, oh, well, now my brother's awake. So now I can't do what I want to do. So I'm just going to throw you back down into the dungeon. and I'll deal with you later, which is a mistake because that allows him to hear the last kid on the phone. Yeah. So first we do get a scene with Gwen. She's starting to get pissed off that she's not getting visions that help her find her brother. And she says the line, Jesus, what the fuck? I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> Just fun, but I doesn't fit her. You know what I mean? Well, no. Remember how she talked to the cops yes, earlier? Remember how she talked to the bullies earlier? But it's She's I, got a mouth on her. No, but I see it written down on the page, and that's the problem. It does not fit. Feel natural. Yeah, I took him down because obviously I'm the grabber, you dumb fucking fart knockers. Gwendolyn Blake! <laughs> fucking cock sucking cowards! Ah! <laughs> 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 Fuck you too, ugly ass face. <laughs> it's, the kid's not naturally saying It's it. Stephen King dialogue. This is what I'm talking about. Is he inherited the dialogue from his father? And I don't know if it's him. Maybe it's not in the short story. Maybe it's Robert Cargill. Who writes movies with Scott Derrickson? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it bothers me. We also didn't mention that when she first finds out her brother's kidnapped, she runs out of her friend's house, and then they have her very obviously either running in place or running on a treadmill in slow motion, and it's very obvious that she's just hopping up and down and not making any progress. I thought that was very stylistic. It was very stylistic, because they do a Hitchcock zoom at that point. Yeah. You know? So. Again, ambiance over food. Yes, style over substance, Yes. So this last kid, Vance, this pinball kid. Pinball Vance Hopper. He gets a whole scene, and it's going to turn into the little sister's dream, which I thought was interesting. That's an interesting blend. It goes from him talking to our main kid to her dream about him. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why we got to see this kid's backstory and none of the other kids, but okay. Yeah, we see his backstory. We see... We don't see anything about Griffin, I don't think. We don't see anything about Griffin. We Billy, we see lead, leading up to the abduction, just like we saw with Robin. And we met Bruce at the beginning. It's we- weird inconsistency with the way they do the past for these kids. Yeah. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. But so we see that this kid was a total bully asshole. He was just on the edge. He was hardcore. <laughs> Kicks a kid's ass for ruining his pinball score. Uh-huh, when he almost beat his high score. And he cuts, and I wrote that down, 7741 into the kid's arm, and you barely see it, and I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of cool because later that's going to be the number of the house. And yeah. I thought that was cool that like they did that for just a moment. like They didn't linger on it. Uh-huh. They weren't trying to say, look at the arm. And I was like, I like but that's, that. But that's her Gwen's vision. That's why she knows where yes, to go. Yes, and I thought that uh-huh. was well done. And this kid, he, it was hard because he was trying to be this tough kid when talking to the other kid on the phone, but his pantomiming was just a bit over the top. Yeah, he has this moment when when Finney thanks him. So, okay, he tells him he tried to get out through the wall. He dug through the wall and he found a freezer, like a standing freezer on the other side of this wall, but he couldn't get through the freezer. And so Finney tells him, thank you. And he says, this isn't about you. Fuck him. And then he just sort of like spirals off into the distance. This isn't about 
about you. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Like, it, it was a very sort of Babadook moment where he's just, like, yanked into the darkness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it was one of those sort of, th- sort of things. Thank you. For what? For helping me. Helping you? This isn't about you! And so what Finney does is he grabs the top of the toilet tank to to dig through the wall and then he uses, we didn't mention this, he cuts the grabber when he's abducted with this little flashlight rocket that he has. And he uses the tail fin on that rocket to unscrew the panel in the back of the freezer. And then, just like Punky Brewster warned us about, we find out that it's one of those freezers that locks from the outside. So he cannot get out. Yeah. But. But. All of these things are going to lead to, and he doesn't know it. He freaks out. He's crying. It's not going to work. He finally cries for the first time. Yeah, like yeah. he's he's kind of come to the like realization, I'm not going to get away. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And it's kind of fun the way all these things come together to, it's going to help him overpower Ethan Hawke and like tr- put him into a little trap, kind of like Home Alone, even though he didn't know that. And I thought that that was fun. Right. And you I liked realize the way when that everything it all comes together. connected as a puzzle. Uh-huh. And it is, it is very fun. But yeah, he starts to cry and Robin tells him not to cry. And Robin is going to give this really shitty emotional, motivational (laughs) speech. It's terrible. Earlier, he said, someday you're going to have to stand up for yourself. He tells Finn this time. Oh, and he calls him Finn for the first time, I think. Maybe if he does earlier, the point is, is that Robin is like this motivational figure in his life. And since Robin calls him Finn, he's like, that's right. I am Finn. I'm not Finny anymore. I'm not a kid. I'm Finn. He says, someday is today, Finn. And he gives him this really motivational speech. And then he tells him how to attack the grabber with the phone. And he teaches him. And that's a fun moment where he's like, first, fill the phone with dirt. And Finn's like, so does this mean I won't be able to talk to any of these kids anymore? He's like, it's going to stop now either way. (laughs) So he fills the the phone receiver with dirt. And then, you know, he tells him, take a step forward, take a step back, and swing. Well, no, he does forward, back, forward. You got to play with your feet. Well, yes. So, but that's when you swing, you step forward when you swing. So it's raise the phone, step forward, step back and swing. And you lunge forward when you swing. And the idea is you step forward. They think you're going to attack. Then you step back. So you miss whatever they try to respond to you with. And that's when you hit them when they've made themselves vulnerable. And so he teaches them how to do that. And so they're like practicing. And as cheesy as it is, I really liked that. (laughs) Didn't like the motivational speech. I liked the practice. That was kind of cool. Meanwhile, Gwen's riding around in the rain in a yellow rain slicker because we got to keep making these Stephen (laughs) King references. And she gets knocked off her bike out of fear because the kids are standing in front of her. Right in but front of the house. Lo and behold, that's not the right house. They point to the house because that's where they're buried. <laughs> they're buried in this other house. And so she calls the cops because the cops were legitimately like, you obviously know things. That was refreshing at least, right? The cops are like, you know something that you have no way of possibly knowing. If you can help us in any way, I don't care if it's nonsense. Help us out. 
And so they respond when she calls them and they show up at this house and they start to search the house. Meanwhile, I guess before this happens or maybe during it, Max snorts a line of coke and <laughs> realizes what's going on. He realizes when he looks at the map that his brother's house falls within the criteria he set of where the grabber must live. And so he starts searching the house. He is wearing a math shirt for some reason. I don't know if he's an out-of-work math teacher. Again, if this was a full book, we'd probably have his whole story about how he became a teacher and why. Also, a teacher character in a King story, right? So, <laughs> Well, yeah, but so he is going to go down there and he's going to be like, oh shit, I can't believe you're down here. But it's too late. He's going to get an axe to the face. To the head. Oh, to the head. The top from behind when the grabber kills him and he's just wearing the eyes at this point and his mouth is revealed, uh, which isn't common. Normally he's wearing a mouth with no eyes or both. It's not common for him to wear the eyes and no mouth. But I guess we need to be able to see his his mouth during this. And it's at this point when every method of escape comes into play. He's decided, you just made me kill my brother. You are dying right now. This is the ultimate disappointment. <laughs> now I get to give you the ultimate punishment. And he ties up the dog. I can't remember the dog's name. Do you remember the dog's name? No. It's like uh, Hercules or one of those type of names, right? Samson. Samson, that's what it is. Yeah. He ties up the dog to prevent Finney from running away because the dog will get him. He's in range of the front door. And Finney runs into the hallway where that leads to the bathroom. And then he pulls the rope tight, which he set up as a tripwire. He trips over the tripwire and falls into the hole, which he covered with one of those carpets that's rolled up in the bathroom. So he falls in and the grabber breaks an ankle. And so he's like stuck in this hole. Well, he does because the bars that were on the window are down there. And it gets his yes, foot caught. Yes, he gets in his there. foot caught, and that causes it all comes together. Yes, uh -huh. And then he just starts beating him at one With point, phone. knocking his mask off. And this is some insight into the grabber character. He panics. He starts holding his face. But this is my point. He didn't do that when he was out and about. He did it when it was removed because I think there is an Ethan Hawk mode and there's a grabber mode. And when he removed the mask, when he was in grabber mode, that caused some sort of mental conflict within him. And he starts freaking out and panicking. Well, it cripples him. He can't really fight back anymore. Not that it mattered. He's in a position where he can't really yeah. do much. And the kids but it allows show the kid to. Yeah, the kids are all taunting him and they're and uh, all the things that they were saying before that felt disjointed. That's what it is. They don't show up. He's hearing him over the receiver. Oh yeah. Because Cause he's been strangling, strangling him. him at this point. But I do think they do show up. Maybe they do. Because they do the pantomime that they were doing earlier uh -huh. in the film as well. But yeah, through the phone, they're taunting him with the things that they said earlier that felt disjointed that now make a conversation. And this is a really cool moment. I gotta say, again, as cheesy as it is, I really like it. Like he he says Finn's arm is mint is what Bruce says right when he yanks down and snaps his neck. Oh, that's fun. I didn't notice yeah, that. Uh -huh. No, that's not what I meant. I don't like it's Finn. Smile for oh, the yeah. camera. No, we're, there, we're, we're almost there. So they're searching around and you're like, oh my God, is all this happening down in the basement while the cops are upstairs? No, they almost don't find the basement. Then they do. Oh my God, they almost don't find the fucking basement. They almost walk <laughs> into a house and they're just like, guess no one's here. And then walk out. They see the mounds because apparently he can't dig down. There's just mounds of dirt. He doesn't want to. Who fucking knows? I don't, he's obviously trying know, to hide it. Because the story isn't going to yeah, bother uh -huh. to tell you. 
Yeah, we never see any of that element. So they come out and they're like, well, we found the bodies, but we don't know where Finn is because she's waiting outside. And then he comes out the front door. Oh, we didn't say. How does he get out when Samson is guarding the door? He gives him meat from the freezer. From the freezer. Fun. (laughs) I guess. It's everything coming together. But then he gets to go and sit next to the girl he liked, which was Yeah, when he goes back to school, everyone's like, oh, shit, he's the guy that killed the grabber. Him? Really? He's smaller than I thought he would be. And then his bullies are just it's sort of looking at him. boy. Yeah, it's the goof boy. Yeah. And then, yeah, when he goes back down, because the girl he liked wanted to be his lab partner. And so she was really sad when he got kidnapped because she actually did like him. And then he sits down next to her and she says, oh, it's good to have you back, Finny. And he's like, it's Finn. (laughs) Which, you know what? Good for him. His identity has changed. He's gotten confidence. He doesn't want to be treated like a child anymore. These are all natural things. But it is a really lame sort of tag at the end of the movie. Yes. Very, very much so. So, Kelsey, what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I think I know. Is it 84? Close. It is 83. Mm -hmm. The black phone might have been even more frightening, but it remains an entertaining, well-acted adaptation of scarily good source material. It has a Metacritic of 65 and a cinema score of B+. It was also nominated for, get this, the Hollywood Critics Association has a mid-season award show in July. And they've had it for this year. And it was nominated for Best Horror Film. It did not win. Okay, good. Do you want to know what won? Yes. So other nominees were Master. I don't know what that is. Scream. Okay. And X. If it's X, I'm going to be so mad. The winner of Best Mid-Season Horror Film was Fresh. You didn't say fresh was one option. Because I was going to reveal it when I told you it won. I wanted to guess which one won. <laughs> no, I wanted to give you the surprise fresh. that fresh won. I yes. was so happy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, fresh had its problems, but yes. I really liked it. Yeah. So do you think that this movie is overrated or underrated? I'm going to say it's overrated. Yeah. I think there's too much that it falls down on for it to be in the 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think it deserves? I was teetering, but mm-hmm. I think I'll give it a 70. I was teetering on 69 dudes, but then I was 70. Yeah, I was too. Is this a 60s movie or is it a 70s movie? It is, like we've said, it's the Rainforest Cafe in a lot of ways. They could have improved upon the substance of this movie in quite a number of different ways. But they do, I think, nail the style in a lot of other ways. It's not perfect, but it has a lot of really good style. And it's a great little bite of a horror movie that I enjoyed overall, I would say. And I would say it was good. Yeah, I think 70 sounds about right. It's good enough to be in the 70s. And again, remember that that, to us, means that it's a pretty good movie. Anything else to say about The Black Phone, Kelsey? I don't think so. So that is our patron's choice serial kidnapper episode. Yeah. Of 1997's Kiss the Girls and 2021's The Black Phone. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week was another patron's choice. Yeah. 
What's the theme of this choice, Kelsey? So we're going to a wedding this weekend. We are. Which means that this will probably come up late again since this one is going up late because I got sick. And it's incredibly... We lost power three times today, the day this is going up. So we just, like, the world did not want us to finish editing this. No. So, yes, this episode is going up late, and we are trying our absolute damnedest to get it up only one day late. Uh, But then next week, (laughs) it might be late again because we are spending an entire weekend going to a wedding. Yes. Uh, So we had all wedding-themed horror movies on this list. Five different episodes, ten movies, all themed around weddings. So what won out in the end, Kelsey? Hatchet for the Honeymoon. From 1970. And Ready or Not. Almost, almost unanimous (laughs) by the patrons. They really, really, really wanted to hear about Ready or Not. Which is funny, because I think we talked about the fact that you really liked it. And I liked I it, didn't yeah. really and, like it. Yeah. But don't. I don't remember why I didn't like it, so maybe I'll have a change of heart. Was it kind of the opposite? Did you like your next more than I did? Yeah. It's. I don't know why. I don't know if I can explain why. At least not off the top of my head. We'll have to watch it and find out, I suppose. Yeah. So next week... A wedding episode, 1970's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, and 2019's Ready or Not. Thank you very much, patrons, for selecting this episode. Patrons including Jeremy E. Haig, Stacey Nye, Greg Soto, David Mezzacappa, The Chickapedia, Jeffrey Crevier. Please tell me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, Gravemind50 and MGS7785. Thank you guys very, very much for backing us over at patreon.com slash pod cemetery. If you want to help decide what our next episode is, you can do so just by backing us over at Patreon. We also have a bunch of extra content. The next thing we're going to be releasing is all about the books that Kelsey has read lately, including Firestarter and the short story that the Black Phone was actually based on. So if you'd like to hear more about the... uh, source material for two of our recent movies. Make sure you're backing us over there and you can hear Kelsey talk all about those. And then after that, we're going to be talking about how just this past weekend, we went to Midsummer Scream, which is a really big horror convention taking place in Long Beach here in Southern California. And that was quite the experience. So we'll talk all about that, Mm -hmm. including Kelsey almost passing out hyperventilating (laughs) out of excitement. (laughs) And I bought a cool shirt. (laughs) So make sure you're backing us there so you can hear all about that extra non-movie stuff at patreon.com slash podcemetery. Until next week, you can find us on our website as well, podcemetery.com, and over on Twitter, at podcemetery. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there. But even bigger than that is sharing us with your friends. And even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Want to see a magic trick?
He's a collector. He's a collector. This guy's a collector. I think is what he actually says. <laughs> That'll do, pig. Mr. Lava Lava. <laughs> I love you so goddamn much. It's so insane how much I love you. You're just perfect for me, you know that? We lost power three times today. Jesus? What the fuck? I mean, what the fuck?